Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, October 12th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, in the aftermath of Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation, we're talking to Broadly staff writer Marie Solis about why believing survivors is an important first step, but why it's still not enough to accomplish the transformative change women want and need. Throughout the Christine Blasey Ford Kavanaugh hearings, the phrase believe women became a really loud rallying cry. We saw it on pins. We saw it on protest signs. We saw it all throughout the media. But despite this message, last week, Brett Kavanaugh, who is an alleged sexual assaulter, was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. And so you wrote an article that poses a really important point, which is that, at least in this particular case, It seems that simply believing women wasn't really enough to actually help them. Can you talk a little bit more about that point? Something that was really interesting to me was that a few of the people who actually voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh said that they believed Ford or found her testimony to be credible. This included Senator Jeff Flake, Susan Collins, who gave this really long speech talking about her vote, and then Senator Joe Manchin. And in their own ways, they said, I believe Ford. However, I am voting for Kavanaugh. And those three senators were essentially the three deciding votes for his confirmation. And so I was really just confronted with this question of what does it mean if you can say that you believe Dr. Ford and then vote for her alleged assailant to sit on the Supreme Court? And that was really the question that I was wrestling with in this piece and and that I tried to seek some insight on from, from the feminist and activist whom I spoke to. Yeah, it seems like in the past few weeks and, you know, the past year with the Me Too movement, we've seen that believing sexual assault survivors can be extremely powerful on an interpersonal level. But the rallying cry to believe women also has pushed many women sort of to report their experiences into a system that seems to, on a policy level, kind of favor alleged perpetrators over survivors and that that experience of sort of being up against that system that doesn't necessarily believe women, that that experience can be very harmful to those women who are brave enough to come forward. And I'm, I'm curious what you make of that and, and how you saw that with the Christine Blasey Ford and, and Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Calling on survivors to break their silence you know, reassuring them that you believe their stories 
it's really valuable, as you said. It's a really important part of the culture shift for for survivors to feel that if they speak out, they'll be believed. At the same time, it almost strikes me as irresponsible is definitely not the right word, but there's something to the idea that you're giving these survivors almost a false sense of what will happen to them when they do speak out and tell their stories, because it presumes that just by telling them, there will be some kind of justice for them, whatever form that justice comes in. But for those who are specifically seeking justice within the criminal justice system, or, you know, if we're talking about campus sexual assault, which I did speak to Jess Davidson from End Rape on Campus. If you're talking about campus sexual assault and you're talking about uh, reporting just to campus authorities, you know, those systems are historically very unfriendly to survivors and can make any kind of justice within those institutions very difficult and and make the process itself of reporting traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just note this rhetorical shift that you mentioned in your piece that you also just mentioned in your answer, which is that pre the Me Too movement, we heard the rallying cry of break the silence. And you noted that in the past year that's shifted or sort of been added to And now what we hear is believe women. And I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit about that language shift and what it signifies, even if it's subtle, why it's significant. So silence has been really focused on within the feminist movement in in different waves of the feminist movement as one of patriarchy's most oppressive mandates that you stay quiet about your sufferings as a woman or as a marginalized person. And we've seen this starting from, and I'm sure even before, but of my earliest recollection is Betty Friedan in her book, The Feminine Mystique. She talks about the problem that has no name. Um, And, you know, women not speaking out about the truth of their own lives and suffering in silence. And then you have Audre Lorde, around the same time saying your silence will not protect you. So the idea of breaking the silence, it's seen as the first step. And I think it is, it really is the first step and it's a really important step. But as I mentioned before, it does put a lot of pressure on survivors to speak out. And that process can be just having to think back about the most traumatizing moments of your life and having to mold it into a coherent narrative that people can understand. When we know that some of these experiences can be very fragmented with Ford's testimony, you know, she admitted that she couldn't remember some of these things and knowing that that could be used against her. And I think the Me Too movement allowed us to take for granted a little bit that women would speak out. And I think that is part of why we have changed the language or, as you said, added a little bit to it to say and to hammer down more on, quote, believe women, uh, believe survivors. I also think it, it kind of shows that we've come at the end of this first year of the Me Too movement. We have seen a lot of change. And the phrase believe women to me, I read it as kind of like 
not a dead end because there is so much more to do, but I feel like in that phrase is embedded this question like, how much more can we do on our own as women without people believing us? Like, okay, we've spoken out, we've reported, we've told our friends and families, we've gone before... (laughs) the Senate Judiciary Committee and have had FBI investigations, how much more can we do on our own without having allies in this fight? And I think that, you know, believe women, it's a demand. Women are saying, you know, we're not waiting around. We demand that you believe women, but there is something in it to me that's almost like pleading. Like we can only do so much and How much more can we do without people just believing us? I mean, it's so interesting, too, because a question that has come up for me is what happens when people do believe women and they just don't care. They don't care about the truth that they've heard and learned and even claim to believe that they would still vote to confirm someone like Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Even those three who said, I believe Ford, essentially their vote said, well, I believe her, but I don't care enough. And I think that that sort of does in some way feel incredibly defeating and sort of heartbreaking. And I'm curious, the the Me Too movement in a lot of ways has empowered women and really fired us up to, to speak out and to protest and to have our voices heard in a new way. And at the same time, a lot of elements of the Me Too movement, especially these uh, Supreme Court hearings, have also really exhausted women and left people with a feeling of, of failure in a sense. And you spoke to a few different sort of longtime feminist activists who have been through a few different Supreme Court battles. And I'm curious what kind of perspective or potentially optimism you gleaned from from them that might bring us sort of beyond this one moment. So one of these longtime feminist activists who you mentioned was uh, Gloria Steinem, who was kind enough to take some of my questions. And, you know, the thing that I've learned from talking to some older feminists, and not just for this article, but in other things that I've written on this topic, is that it's really hard for for me to imagine how to sustain the feelings of anger and sadness that I've, I've been feeling recently. And I think a lot of my peers who are young women feel very similarly. Like, I can't really imagine being, you know, 70 years old and still being so angry and sad. But the thing is, I think that they have a lot more hope than some younger feminists do at this moment. And so it is really nice to talk to them because they they have lived through a lot of iterations of the feminist movement and seen a lot of change. And they've seen how quickly things can change, things that we can't even imagine right now. And I think that, you know, thinking about how a lot of people felt when Donald Trump was president, I don't think anyone really foresaw the Me Too movement. I think it really caught everyone by surprise. And feminists like Gloria Steinem 
someone like Tina Chen, who I spoke to, who is Michelle Obama's former chief of staff. Uh, She heads the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. She is an attorney and has done, you know, has has worked on a lot of these issues in the private and public sector. They're saying that they have never seen a moment like this before. And as I've said, they've seen a lot of really seismic changes. And so things like that can give us some some hope and perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The Me Too movement has created incredibly significant and visible cultural shifts. And I'm curious, like, what are some of the more concrete policy changes that we can advocate for to change not just how sexual assault is sort of received in the public on a cultural level, but more on a policy or structural level, how sexual assault cases are are litigated and sort of dealt with in the various systems, including the the legal system and the the justice system. Tina Chen, something that she brought up in our conversation was rape shield laws, which I actually didn't know about until I started reporting this story. And rape shield laws came about with the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, um, which is set to expire in December, uh, has no Republican sponsors on it yet, as I've last seen. But rape shield laws basically made it illegal for attorneys to cross-examine a plaintiff who would be you know, an alleged victim of sexual assault and use that person's sexual past as evidence against them, you know, to discredit whatever allegations of sexual assault they were bringing in the court. It's just one facet of the law and of our criminal justice system that still remains very unfriendly to to victims of sexual assault, but it did make a big difference. And again, we're at risk of losing those gains if this act isn't renewed in December. But something that Chen, as well as Jess Davidson, who I mentioned earlier from End Rape on Campus, something they both brought up is this problem of evidence and what is considered evidence in sexual assault cases. And someone else I, I spoke to from Time's Up who's comments didn't make it into the story. Something that she mentioned that I thought was really interesting is she felt that there seemed to be, even though Ford was not on trial, (laughs) that's important to note, but something that seemed to be present during Ford's hearing is this idea that there could be different forms of evidence. She talked about telling certain members of her family or her friends years after the alleged assault and having consistently told the same story over time. So this attorney from Time's Up, you know, was talking about how, and and Chen does mention this, and I quote her on this, is that, you know, we can start to see credible testimony over years as a form of evidence because we know that we often don't have hard evidence in sexual assault cases. We often don't have eyewitnesses to sexual assault. And so a big problem that advocates are trying to tackle in the criminal justice system and when we're talking about campus sexual assault is what constitutes evidence. So if breaking the silence is step one 
as we mentioned, and believing women is step two, then what's step three? What's our way forward from here? It's kind of hard to tell right now. And I think part of that is because, again, we can't really see what's coming. We didn't see the Me Too movement coming. It swept us up. Whatever the next phase is, we might not even be able to imagine it yet. But the next step is enshrining that basic sentiment of believe survivors into our policies and laws and institutions. That said, I think that we can't look up to these institutions and expect them to change just as fast as culture is changing. The Supreme Court has never been a vanguard of change. This is something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg likes to say a lot, but I think she's right. The Supreme Court has historically not been the body that's foraging change in the country. These institutions are always catching up with the changes that come from the grassroots and from activists and everyday people who are speaking out and organizing and The fact is we have created a lot of change in this first year and ending this first year of the Me Too movement on Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation isn't to say that we failed. I think that that's a hopeful place to end. Thank you so much, Marie. Thanks, Sophie. You can read the full story at broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.